Well, good morning, Sunset family. I'd like to welcome all of you uh, from wherever you are here in our community, a regular part of our Sunset family, some of you joining us on our live stream who have never uh, attended worship with us in person. Uh, I've heard from some of you and about some of you. Welcome to the the broader family. So glad to have you here. And of course, others of you uh, around the Northwest and some even in other countries of the world, as we hear from some of you. Uh, checking us out and worshiping with us, and we're so glad to have all of you with us. I would like to invite you this morning to take your Bibles, if you have one handy, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, which is the text where we will begin in just a couple of moments. Uh, You have heard us uh, announce that this morning we're going to celebrate communion together, even during this time of exile, so to speak. Uh, Time apart, and yet time together. Communion, of course, is a remembering of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it is not uh, uh, an element that earns us favor with God in terms of salvation and things like that, but it's a time of, of significant remembrance. And I believe that today, as we do that, in just a whole different format, I think this can still be a meaningful experience for us all. We often think about communion as an individual time with the Lord, uh, me and Jesus, so to speak. And there is an element of communion where we take moments to bow our heads and to pray and be grateful in our own hearts. But um, I, I think it's good today, as we'll remember together, that there is something about the celebration of communion that is, that is clearly a together. It's body of Christ. It's about unity. It's about what Christ has done for us, not just what Christ has done for me. And it's my hope this morning that that, that element of, of, of unity in the body will come across loud and clear, both in what we say from the Word of God and in how we celebrate communion today. Uh, but I want to begin by thinking with you about that first, what we call communion time. The night when Jesus was betrayed, Before then, he met with his disciples in what would appear by all accounts to be a Passover gathering. Uh, Jesus, having washed the disciples' feet, as we read in John 13, because no one else would wash the feet, but Jesus did and had their attention and walked them through those elements of Passover. But I want you to think specifically about who was in the room. That'll help us get going today. Who was in the room? Well, uh, in addition to Jesus, the 12 disciples, certainly, and I'm not going to talk about each of them specifically, but a number of them, because I want you to think about who was there. So Peter, for example, Uh, Peter is certainly listed in all the lists of disciples first for a big reason. He had a big personality. He had, at times, one would argue, a big mouth into which he regularly inserted his foot. Uh, He got into trouble a lot, but a big personality, a passionate follower of Christ, the rock, uh, a little rock, and a big confession of Jesus, the Savior. He was joined in following Christ by his brother Andrew. Andrew, of course, according to the Gospel of John, was the one who brought Peter to begin with. Hey, we found this one, and Andrew, though uh, a brother to Peter, was a quieter brother. Doesn't seem to have ever sought the spotlight. Great contrast to his brother. Uh, James and John, Together, the sons of Zebedee, together called the sons of thunder, thunderous men, passionate. They were the ones when the, 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 the Samaritans did not respond well to Jesus. 
who suggested to Jesus that they call down fire from heaven and take care of those rascals. Uh, Nice guys, you understand. Uh, James, though a passionate follower, one who met his end with a sword, according to the book of Acts, uh, John, the disciple of love, kind of a black and white guy, honestly. He's the one closest to Jesus. But if you read 1 John, John writes in very black and white terms. Some of you are like that, by the way. It's either this or this. No gray areas. There are none. And John tended to write that way. Philip, the boy who, uh, the man who had his nose in the little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish, right over here. Maybe he had the little guy by the ear. The guy's going, give me my lunch back. I don't know, but that was Philip checking out lunch. And then a couple of others, Matthew, tax collector, a sellout, uh, not loved, not loved by the, the loyal Jewish crowd who did not like their Roman oppressors. Matthew, who probably bought his position as a tax gatherer, gave money to the Romans and padded his own pocket as well. Matthew, a, a despised tax collector. Thomas, we like Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. I think he was the Eeyore of the bunch, if I would guess. Some of you are like that too. Uh, he's the one who, when Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, said, let's go with him so that we can die also. Kind of a cheerful guy, uh, doubting the resurrected Christ. And then one more to mention in the room. Who's in the room? Uh, Simon the Zealot. Simon Zelotes, you read. Simon the Zealot, well, he was, listen, he would have been like a tea party guy back in the day. The Zealots were, some have called them terrorists. Um, right wing, uh, sought to overthrow Rome. Uh, apparently, at least for a season, the, the zealots had a, a, a pact among themselves to carry a knife in the folds of their garment. And if they ever got the drop on a Roman soldier or a conspirator with the Romans, like, say, I don't know, Matthew, well, we'll take care of that. Back alley. No one will know. Simon the zealot comes to Christ. I often uh, think with a smile about uh, maybe a campfire night when Jesus is sitting there with the guys, and they're going to lie down by the campfire to to sleep for the night. And Matthew, the tax collector, may be keeping an eye on where Simon the terrorist is and maybe moving a few bodies over. I don't know. I'm hoping not. But nonetheless, well, I mentioned all of them. And, of course, there were others, uh, little known, really, don't show up in the gospel stories much. But I, I mentioned them because of the diversity. They were different in terms of personality, some loud, some quiet, Aggressiveness, not so much. They were different politically. Right wing, no, sellouts to the government. Uh, really, apart from Christ, and please get that carefully, apart from Christ, there was no reason for that bunch to be in the room together. Fishermen, tax collectors, what do they have in common? A zealot. Why would he hang out with somebody like Matthew? The only common bond was Jesus. This morning, we want to think about that together, that just as at that early time, those early disciples of Jesus had a lot that was different one to the other, so they had something in common, and that is Christ. I think it's very interesting that it was to that very diverse group that in John 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. 
as I have loved you. Why do you think he needed to say that as he prepared to leave? Why do you think it is that in John 17, as we'll see in a few moments, that Jesus prayed in that last, what we call the high priestly prayer, why do you think he prayed for unity? Why do you think that was? Why didn't he pray about their evangelistic methods or their, their, their devotional times or that they would dress right like disciples or get their hair cut correctly or something? Why did he pray for profound unity? Well, I, I think we know why. And I think those reasons are true today. I want to pray for us. We have a number of things we're going to move very quickly through. And I want to, I want to talk very pointedly with us as a church family about this business of unity. And so um, I am, I'm very hopeful that we'll, together we'll know God's presence. And um, I'm saying this a bit of tongue-in-cheek, but not entirely. Um, I'm hoping we're still friends by the time we conclude our time together this morning. Would you pray with me, please? And let's invite God's presence among us. Our Father, as always, we come to your word with great joy. We come inviting the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and impress it upon our hearts and to change us. We, we need to be changed. We need you to shape our, our thoughts and our desires, our passions. We need you to change our words at times to give us love for our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And I pray that today that you would help us as we visit several texts together and talk about what they mean. And then as we remember Christ through communion, our Father, would you be honored by the response of our hearts? Help us today. Help us here. In Jesus' name, amen. So you have heard me say that today we'll be stepping out of our study in Colossians and really just thinking together about the gospel and what it means, Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, to do that, uh, there are several texts we're going to visit. We're going to do this more briefly, perhaps, than a, a longer exposition. But I want to come to Ephesians 4, where I invited you to be with me. And then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 12 and John 17 and Romans as well, chapter 14. And then back to 1 Corinthians. There's the path for the morning. So that's more text than I usually ask you to go to. But I come here now to Ephesians chapter 4, and some of you have a study sheet run off. You'll find that on our website, and you can always download that, use it on a, on a screen, or, or print it off if you have the capability of doing that. But there are several things I want to say today, and hear from Ephesians 4 as I read it in a moment. Here is my, here is my key element, and that is that we must be eager. That's the key word, eager, to maintain unity. Now, before I read Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I want to just a little bit of context, as always, is so important for us. The book of Ephesians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, and its topic is the church. Specifically, the amazing thing that, that, that God did in putting together this new body made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. And unless you think New Testament, early church, you, you, you might not think it's all that amazing. But the Jewish crowd coming out of the Old Testament time with all the patterns and customs and Sabbath and so on, coming to Christ, coming to faith, and then God bringing into that one body, not only the Jewish crowd, 
but the Gentile crowd, people who didn't even know the Ten Commandments, for goodness sakes, couldn't have named you any of them. People who weren't used to celebrating Shabbat, Sabbath, who when somebody maybe blew that ram's horn thing, that shofar, some of them might have stepped down and said, good night, what is that noise? Much easier if they had just had a Jewish church to let them be Jewish and a Gentile church to let them be Gentile. It would have been much easier. Uniformity, listen to this, uniformity is always easier than true unity. But that wasn't God's plan. And so God put together a new body made up of Jew and Gentile alike. And he said, no, listen, learn, learn to be one. And so Ephesians then, the first three chapters are teaching. They're explaining their doctrine. And then beginning in chapter four, Paul says, therefore, meaning here come the implications of this. So listen, as I read God's word, then Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, think about what I read, what you see in front of you in the context of that Jew and Gentile collision, all right? So Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And of course, my key phrase for emphasis today is verse 3, eager, eager, Paul says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager, not just willing, but eager. Now, as you see Paul's instruction here, he's talking about maintaining the unity of the, of the body. He is not talking about creating a unity. The church is never called to create unity that does not exist, but rather to live into the unity that is ours because together, all who know Christ as Savior belong to the same body, that is the church. And of course, that's New Testament teaching. All true Christians are placed into the body of Christ, the big C church, of which there are many local expressions. And I remind us that that is true of regardless of ethnicity or family background or denomination of choice or even personal past failures together placed into the body of Christ when there is genuine faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. So that is a work that God does in placing us into the body of Christ, the big C church. And we are to live into that unity, to maintain the unity that does in fact exist And of course, the rest of this chapter talks about differences, different giftedness in the body of Christ, and the importance of each part. If you look toward the the middle section, the verses that come, 14, 15, 16, as your eye moves down the text, you see the emphasis on the whole body and the value of each part, joints and ligaments, making the body work well. So Paul's point here, for us then to grab a hold of, we must be eager, eager to maintain unity that does in fact already exist because we belong to Christ. All right, I'm going to shift now. I've 
warned you that we're going to shift a number of texts. So here we go. First Corinthians 12, then, if you would go there with me, please. First Corinthians chapter 12, not only must we be eager to maintain unity, uh, a key element here in First Corinthians 12, as I have framed it for us, is that we must see unity as both valuable and vulnerable. And folks, it is vulnerable. When you come to 1 Corinthians now, you come to a letter that has been written to a divided church. Several years ago, we preached our way through 1 Corinthians, and we saw in chapter 1 Paul's amazement at, their, at the divisions among them. They were all, all over the place. In fact, about any chance that they had to divide, they did it. They lined up with different teachers. They lined up with different socioeconomic backgrounds. They divided about every chance they got. It was a, a very divisive place. And so here, Paul then addresses the body of Christ. And when you come to 1 Corinthians 12, again, I want to read a section and just a few reflections on it for our purposes today. As we think about the unity in the body, I I come to 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12, and I'm going to read down to verse 26. I understand a lengthier section, but hear the word of God speak to us. Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ, for In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the eye should say, or the ear should say rather, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, Paul, of course, using the human body as an analogy here, as elsewhere, to underscore both unity, the body is one, that's repeated throughout this text. You heard as I read, you saw word after word, one, an element of of unity uh, emphasized, as well then, diversity in the body. And of course, Paul is is using strong irony, Uh, body parts cannot speak, your eye can't say, there's no mouth, and on and on and on, and he knows that you get that. He is simply pointing out the diversity in the body, a healthy human body has, has unity as the parts communicate and interconnectedness and yet great diversity. I, 
referenced earlier that unity and uniformity are not the same thing. And please, please track with me on this. I know that some churches, and again, I, I respect and honor as I speak, um, some churches to choose the path of, of uniformity. That is, in more, a whole lot of details. I don't just mean solid core doctrine, but in a lot of life application details. They choose uniformity. So we might be a, for example, a hymn singing, ESV preaching, or NAS preaching, um, oh my goodness, American car driving type of church. And if that isn't you, you probably shouldn't come. Some churches are very homogenous in terms of their socioeconomic status and all kinds of things. And I understand there's times and places for things. I'm simply saying this. We must not mistake unity for uniformity. And one of our core values here at Sunset Bible Church has been that we have unity on essentials and some diversity on non-essentials. And I, if you have my study notes, you see here, by saying non-essential, I am not saying non-important. Because there are a lot of things that are important, important in our lives, important in our families, but they are not essential for salvation. And I think it's critical that we know the difference. So I mentioned the term biblical diversity on your study notes there. It's a phrase that I use a lot around Sunset Bible Church, biblical diversity. I know that the term diversity is used in a lot of different ways in our culture, and I mean it in its biblical context, such as here in 1 Corinthians, a value for others who don't think like we do, who aren't gifted in the same way as us, not less gifted, differently gifted or differently abled when it comes to to physical abilities as well. So there are differences in the body. And as I mentioned under my main heading here, unity is both valuable and it is vulnerable because sometimes in in the way we function, the way we think, we... We tend to want to value, we think, uniformity. That is, everyone should be like me. Uh, clearly, the world would be better if everyone was like me. A happier place. And if you have my notes in front of you, you see that I want to talk about some specifics here, and I do. Um, for example, I'd like to talk for a minute about the circumstances we find ourselves here uh, in. Uh, that is, with a little pandemic event going on. Because it occurs to me that in every generation of the church, there are new threats to unity, new ways that we can divide and irritate one another and unnecessarily step on each other. And folks, I want to talk about this because I am profoundly uh, concerned that as we get to a place where soon, I trust, we'll be able to meet together again. Wasn't that going to be wonderful? I hear it from everybody. Can hardly wait to come back together. Uh, hold on a second there, Tiger. I want to talk about this together. Uh, as I interact with, with you, and I have, uh, many of you in person or in various types of media, um, in some cases, don't tell anybody, at my house or at yours, I am seeing at least six lenses through which people view our present circumstances. There are others, but I'm going to highlight six. 
And I, I'm doing this with some amount of fear and trepidation, knowing that I will probably represent a lens that you hold to, maybe several of these. And it's possible that you're going to think that I'm poking fun at you. And I may be to make a point. So stay with me till we get to the punchline, all right? Before you leave the room to get coffee and are offended. But here are some ways that people in the church body are viewing this pandemic moment. Some of us are viewing this through a political lens. That is, it's all about the president, and either he's your hero or he's the goat. You're either amazed at his strong leadership or you cannot believe how awful it is. No, really. Some of you are thinking about Governor Inslee, and some of you are thinking he's the best leader that's ever come along. You can't believe how good and wise he is. We should do everything that is said. And others of you are thinking it's time for a recall, and you'll probably be in Olympia tomorrow uh, for the rally. Open, a, open up the government, open up the economy. So, so political lenses and all variations of this. Um, political commentary, political values. And let me tell you something, in the, here in this Sunset Bible Church, we're all over the map on this. Right about the time you think everybody holds your view on anything I just said, you're wrong. So the political lens. A uh, second lens through which people are looking at this is the economic lens. Can you imagine what's going on in our economy? We're ruining the place, some would say. The, 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 the cure is worse than the, than the disease. By the time we all come up for air and the, the pandemic is over, there will be no food. There will be no jobs. Some of you have been furloughed from jobs. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have lost businesses. I don't just mean close the business for the moment. I mean lost it because financially it didn't pencil out, even with government help. So the economic lens, some would say, can you imagine what's going on? And all of your conversation is based about that. It's time to get back to work or thank goodness, isn't it better to be alive? Keep the economy closed. So there are varieties of ways of looking through the economic lens. Some of you now are looking at all of this through the prophetic lens. You've got your Bibles open and you're looking at the book of Revelation. You're watching different stories about one world government, microchipping, um, uh, one world currency, all kinds of things like that. And you are ready to go. If you're a, a pre-tribulation rapture person like I am, you might be thinking, yeah, you got your bags packed. You're sleeping on the roof at night. You are ready to go because Jesus is coming any day and away we go into the book of uh, Revelation and the tribulation and so on. Others of you who might not be so sure on pre-trib rapture, you're thinking this is the tribulation. I mean, doesn't this look pretty awful? But you're thinking prophetically, some of you. And all that you look at and read, and you, you subscribe to blog posts about it. Uh, fourth, a fourth lens, the medical end of things. Well, there's a lot said about the medical end of things. Here at Sunset Bible Church, I was counting. I think we have, we have over a dozen RNs who are, many of them, working very hard. Some are about to get laid off, uh, I understand. But, but here in our church family, RNs, a couple of, uh, of uh, uh, physician's assistants, PAs, uh, at least one CNA, and a whole number of others in some element of the medical field. And you tend to think about all the medical ends of things. What's going on? What's going on in the hospitals? You got your finger on the pulse there, pun intended. And you're watching what's going on from the medical end of things. And so when we talk to you, you really know what's going on there and you think that way, okay? No problem. Biblical. I'm going to use a biblical lens as opposed to the prophetic 
There are two different branches here that I have heard represented. One, the biblical branch of judgment. God is spanking us. Do you know what's going on around here? God is upset at us for the following things, and it's time for judgment to begin even in the house of God, certainly our culture. So it's judgment. Others of you, and again, I'm not beating up on any of these yet, but, but others of you are thinking of Scripture in terms of comfort and trust and saying to people of all these other lenses, hey, get a grip, man. Could you just trust God here? What's all this running around? I know the economy's crashing. People are going to die. Who knows about the government? But trust God and get a grip. So a biblical lens. Some of you, and here's my sixth, sixth lens. This is kind of fun. The conspiracy lens. Now, you know who you are. I don't want to call you out. But you're thinking of, of the origin of the disease, and this was no accident. This was sprung on us by all kinds of people. This is warfare. Um, it was done by the CIA or it was done by the Chinese. Maybe the Russians were involved too. I don't know who you have in mind. Black helicopters, somebody's behind all of this. Certainly Bill Gates knows what's going on and he's probably got a hand in it. I, I don't know them all. I'm simply saying by these six lenses, and again, there are others, that in the Sunset family, some of us are tracking news accounts and blog posts for all of these. Isn't that interesting? The reason I know that is because I hear from you. I've heard all of those represented to me. Uh, Different ways that people look at things. And let me tell you something. Unity in the body of Christ is vulnerable. Do you know that? It's vulnerable today in ways that it wasn't 90 days ago. But these are new opportunities for division. I referenced earlier as we began John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. As he finished Passover celebration with his disciples, gospels tell us they sang a hymn and they headed out to go to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus left Jerusalem down the Kidron Valley, uh, running red, the Kidron Valley was, with the blood of animals being slaughtered for Passover. Jesus ascended the other side to the Mount of Olives, went to the garden to pray. And he prayed that his followers would be one. I want to read just a couple of those verses because I want you to see that as Jesus headed to the cross, again, there's a lot of other things that he could have prayed about. He could have prayed that we'd stay healthy, that we wouldn't be persecuted. He could have prayed for the safety of all kinds. We tend to pray a lot about safety, don't we? Keep us safe. He could have prayed for safety. He didn't. He didn't mention that at all. Could have prayed that we'd all have devotions at six in the morning for three hours. He could have prayed about all kinds of things for the church, but he didn't. Here's what he said. I do not ask for these, his disciples, Immediately, those disciples. I did not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in them through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one 
so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you have loved me. Francis Schaeffer, of course, back in the 70s, very eloquently pointed out the strong uh, apologetic element here about unity in the body because Jesus ties it in. It says that the world may, may know that you sent me, he says to the Father. In other words, when the church that has all kinds of opportunities to divide instead functions as one with all its diversity, that there is evidence to a watching world of the reality of God because nothing else could take these very different people and put them together except the spirit of God. That's what Jesus prayed about as he headed to the cross. So I started in Ephesians 4 saying we must be eager to maintain unity. 1 Corinthians 12, we must see unity as valuable and vulnerable. And then a brief stop in Romans 14 as we come to a conclusion. Under this heading, we must pursue unity, pursue unity out of love for Christ and others. And I want to read 12 verses here from Romans, and I want to talk a little more about applying what I just said a minute ago about how we look at all of our current circumstances through different lenses. So gird up your loins, the Bible says, we want to get a little more specific here, all right? So again, hear the word of God, Romans 12, or sorry, Romans 14, 1 through 12. And Paul is writing about some specific cultural issues, but I'd like you to think about our cultural issues as I read the text. Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Of course, eating meat offered to idols was a big deal back then. Now, verse 3, let not the one who eats despise. You see that? Let not the one who eats who sees it one way, despise the one who doesn't, the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another. Think Jewish crowd and Sabbath here. One person esteems one day as better than another. Another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I think we obey that phrase pretty well. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, well, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. And he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and, and lived again, that he might be bore, Lord both of the dead and of the living. So, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, 
Each of us will give an account of himself to God. So I'm saying we must pursue unity out of love for God and love for people. I I emphasize here, first of all, from the text, words that represent attitudes, wrong attitudes, sinful attitudes toward those who disagree with us or with whom we disagree. So verse 3, let not him who eats despise. Can you imagine? Despise the one who sees it different. You can despise a person with your snotty attitude. You can despise a person by talking about them when they're not there or making fun of them or their viewpoint. You can despise them by not treating them well, not showing respect. You can despise a person a lot of different ways. And here Paul says, body of Christ, let not the one who sees it this way despise the one who sees it that way. Let not the one who abstains, in this case, pass judgment on the one who sees it differently. I, I think together about our church foyer today, empty. But in a few weeks, I hope with people in it. Can you imagine the meltdown that could happen if all of us who view the present pandemic from our six different lenses came in that Sunday eager to inflict our opinions on everyone else? Can you picture this? One person comes in still cautious, wearing a mask and gloves, and another person comes in and blurts out, come on, people, get over it. One person heads over to the coffee pot to get another cup of coffee and says, "Uh uh-oh, has this been sanitized? The get over it people come on over and say, come on, man, you want coffee or not? One person decides it's time to talk about the president or the governor or anything else political and does so, stepping all over the toes of someone else who sees it different. The, the handshaker or the hugger rushes to embrace a person who would prefer to socially distance. You huggers and handshakers are busy saying, oh, come on, people, enough already. And others are still saying, oh, hold on there, tiger. You don't know my concerns. I was out the other day walking home from, from work, actually, the office. I was alone at the office that day. And I came across a person in an a apartment driveway that I knew from past time here at Sunset. Um, he was a good 20, 25 feet away. And he recognized me. I didn't recognize him because he was all bundled up and gloved up and so on. And um, he said, hi. And I uh, identified himself because I wouldn't have known who it was. And I, I said, well, hi. And I took one step toward him. And he went, whoa, 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 whoa. Close enough. That was about 20 feet. No problem, friend. If you're watching, Jesus loves you and so do I. I stopped, of course. What's going to happen here in the foyer when a person who is saying close enough is embraced in a bear hug? I mean, folks, loving one another is going to get very, very practical when we come back together. Now, it isn't just when we get back together, though that's a concern of mine. I'd like you to be thinking about that. How will I love my church family who might see this all different than I do, how will I love them when we return again to corporate worship? But but it's also about now, as we talk to one another, as we 
post things on our various social media pages? What are we saying? How do we, how do we portray people who view it different? And I'd like you, again, if you have your notes, I'd like you to look at this. And if you don't, I'm going to read this to you because I want, I, I want you to think about this. Some of us think like this. And it's, it's right at the edge of sin. Arrogance, in the very least. Some of us think like this. All smart people think like I do. Is that true? No. Some of us think this. If that person who sees it different would just read this article or blog post or watch this TV channel for at least a little bit, that person would think like I do. If they would only read the Facebook posts I've read, they would agree with me. Because, of course, all all smart people think like I do. Some people think it's my job, your job, to convince other people to think like you do. Not true. Absolutely, absolutely not true. I have on your study notes here. How about a little humility here, folks? Could it be, sorry, going to read this anyway. Could it be that you're not nearly as smart as you think you are? Uh, Dear friends, I love you. I'm simply saying this as a matter of a call to humility for a body of Christ to function together. uh, That means we pursue unity. So when we get back together, it's genuinely good to see people, even if they don't see it like we do. It means that the social distancers respect those who are eager to give them a hug and figure out a way to say, hey, not today, thank you, but not despise. It means that those who want to hand sanitize everything in sight give grace to those who might pick up a bulletin and might have germs on it. It means that somebody who views political issues a little different and starts to spout off about your own little viewpoint restrains themselves and says, friend, it's good to see you. Welcome. I just think we need to talk about this now so that when we get back together and when we talk to each other on social media, dear friends, we must love one another. We must love one another. I think... I think I have read, not only heard from many of you about all these lenses, I think I've read a whole bunch of your articles, blog posts, and newspaper articles. Um, I've been sent them by many of you, uh, referenced, if you'd only read this. I have views, too, on all those things. It's not my job today to inflict my views on you, only those of the Word of God. And I'm saying today, because of the gospel, we must love one another. There is nothing more symbolic of the kind of unity that should exist in the body of Christ in a practical way, nothing more symbolic of this than the practice of communion. Communion is remembering Jesus. It's this one central thing that ties us all together with all those different lenses and all those different viewpoints. It's Christ that draws us together. And so it is right that on a particular day such as today, scattered though we are, that together we would remember Christ. Now, we're going to do this differently because we've never celebrated communion remotely. And I have invited you, of course, over the last several weeks um, to make sure that you have some kind of grape juice or uh, bread or something uh, that would resemble the elements that we typically use in communion. I have, with a smile on my face, urged you away from milk and chocolate chip cookies, thinking that such casualness probably pollutes the the, the, the celebration a bit, but I hope you've made proper preparation. Um, as always, communion is a celebration for those who know Christ. 
If you're joining us today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, maybe you haven't made preparations anyway, feel free to stick with us uh, during this time that we remember Christ in communion. I'm going to pray together, and then I'm going to say just a few words about how we're going to proceed and what I'd like to invite you to do in your own home, maybe with your family or by yourself. But I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll remember Jesus together. Father, thank you so much for the way that your word speaks so clearly about the true unity in the body of Christ. So fragile, yet so real. Thank you that it's true because of Jesus, whose death on the cross for our sin, his resurrection from the dead, his his ascension to heaven. This is the gospel that draws us together. I'm reminded together uh, as we pray of the words of John Newton, author of, of the song Amazing Grace, who said two things I know. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And our Father, I pray that for all the things that we think we know, that we would know those things most profoundly. Indeed, we are great sinners, and Christ is a great Savior. Father, I pray that you would overwhelm us today with those two elements so loudly and clearly that, that the other things that would divide us would fade into the background, that we would long to know, be known most for Christ and him crucified rather than our views on anything else. Father, may, may you be honored as today we remember Jesus and we pray together in his name, amen. So I am going to find myself in 1 Corinthians 11, which to a divided church is Paul's explanation of communion. It's very interesting. If you read, we're not going to, but if you were to read all of 1 Corinthians 11, you'd see that, you'd see that Paul talks about divisions in the body, and then he says, here's communion. And then he talks about God's judgment. It's kind of interesting. It's, it's packaged right in the middle there. Where, where Paul talks about what it means to belong to the body of Christ. 